Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. Hey listeners, I hope this series finds you safe and healthy. I would like to clarify that in this series, when I use the word labor, I am referring to the action of labor. When I use the words labor movement, I am referring to the actions unions commonly use in organizing. In discussing labor, I will be including discussions of slavery both before the United States was created and after. Although colonial labor systems differed from place to place, and changed over time, bondage was their linchpin. Slaves, indentured servants, and other captives vastly outnumbered wage workers, and the latter enjoyed few civil liberties beyond the inviolable right to quit an unbearable job. The Spaniards were the first colonists to arrive in what would be the future United States in the 1500s exploring Florida looking for gold and Indian captives to work the Caribbean gold mine. By 1565, they had claimed Florida as a colony. In the late 1500s, the Spanish crown had outlawed the outright enslavement of the Indians, but other forms of Indian bondage existed, and slavery was often practiced despite the law. Spain's North America colonies established missions all throughout their colonies, started by Franciscan friars working to convert Indians to Christianity, especially in the colony of New Mexico. By 1629, there were 50 Franciscan missions in the colony, and 86,000 Pablo Indians had been baptized. Most converts lived in the mission settlements, where men, women, and children spent most of their waking days at labor under the supervision of the friars. While Spanish law did not define mission Indians as slaves, they were neither free to come and go as they wished, flogging away those who failed to do their assigned work, missed the compulsory religious services, or otherwise broke the friars' rules. Outside the missions, the Pablo people labored under the encomienda system in which recipients of royal land grants collected tribute from the land's inhabitants. Under this system, the Pablos produced maize, cotton blankets, and hides for export to Mexico or Spain. Tribute in the form of forced labor was prohibited by the crown, but encomenderos repeatedly ignored that rule. In both New Mexico and Florida, colonists also used 
repartimenta and rescate on native peoples. The system of repartimenta de indios drafted Indians for labor on public works projects, unloading ships, transporting supplies, building and repairing roads, bridges, and fortifications. Colonial officials would often extend services beyond the legal term, dispensed with wages, and compelled repartimenta workers to labor for private businesses and households. Rescate was practiced in all Spanish colonies. Indians taken captive by other Indians were ransomed and bound over for domestic services in colonists' households. English and French colonists enslaved the Indians too, though never in the same numbers as did the Spanish. In 1622, Virginians sold Indian survivors of Powhatan's War into slavery in the West Indies. In 1637, Indian survivors of the Pequot War in New England were enslaved in Bermuda, and the list goes on. A census of South Carolina in 1708 counted 3,960 free whites, 4,100 African slaves, 1,400 Indian slaves, and 120 indentured whites. Indentured workers, our servants, were a key source of labor for British colonies. They planted the first crops at the Jamestown Colony, founded in Virginia in 1607. Britain's first permanent settlement in what is now the United States, 12 of them were aboard the Mayflower when it brought the pilgrims to Plymouth, Massachusetts, in 1620. In the mid-1770s, the same time the American Revolution broke out, more than half of all European immigrants to the colonies had entered as indentured servants, roughly guessed at about 60 to 77 percent. Until the 1660s, most black immigrants to British North America arrived as indentured workers too. Indentured placed workers in bondage for a limited term, typically three to five years, though some served considerably more time. What had promised to be a short term might stretch into a long one. Magistrates routinely extended the terms of servants hauled into court for fleeing their masters or otherwise breaking the law. For the duration of the indenture, they were their master's property and many were repeatedly bought and sold before their terms expired. Many volunteers signed into indenture hoping for better opportunities than Europe offered. The volunteers signed indentures with labor contractors who paid their passage and sold them to American employers. Because of this, they served relatively short terms some were English convicts sentenced to servitude in the colonies. Others were destitute children kidnapped off the streets of England's seaports or ordered into indenture by colonial authorities. Still, others were debtors bound by law to work off their obligations to creditors. Terms for these individuals of up to 14 years were not at all uncommon. The thousands that were indentured to tobacco planters in the Chesapeake region of Virginia and Maryland had it the worse. Nearly two-thirds of these workers died before the indentures ended, following an Indian attack that killed 347 Jamestown residents in March of 1622. The Virginia Company 
back in England inquired into the fate of the 700 people in the colony as of spring 1619 and the 3,579 immigrants who had arrived since then. A head count showed that just 1,240 remained alive. Those who made it to the end of service, each worker except the convicts and debtors received what was called freedom dues, a sum of money, a parcel of land in some colonies, and perhaps other things such as clothing, tools, a horse or cow. Surviving records suggest that of all the people indentured in British North America between 1607 and 1776, just 20% went on to self-employment in the colonies or newborn United States. About half did not outlive their indentures. Most of the rest became wage workers or paupers or returned to their countries of origin. In 1505, a Spanish ship carried a cargo of slaves from West Africa to Hispaniola, starting one of the most hideous and profitable business enterprises in world history. By the time the trade ended in 1870, an estimated 15 to 20 million Africans had been forcefully transported to the Americas, about 1 million to the United States or the colonies that preceded it. Up to five times the number who reached American shores died en route to slavers ships or during the ocean crossing. Starting in the 1640s in Virginia, colonial courts sentenced black servants who fled their masters to lifelong bondage. In 1663, Maryland's lawmakers declared all of its black residents slaves for life and imposed the same status on all persons henceforth born to enslaved women. In 1670, Virginia condemned all Africans entering the colony to slavery, and a 1682 law extended the sins to all offspring of enslaved women. In 1710, every colony had passed laws that enslaved Africans and their descendants, as well as Indian captives, between 1700 and the start of the American Revolution in 1775, the number of slaves in British North America rose from about 25,000 to 500,000, about 90% laboring in the southern colonies of Virginia, Maryland, and Georgia, and the Carolinas. Slavery was not limited to the southern colonies. By the mid-1700s, nearly every wealthy family in the northern port cities owned household slaves. Up to a third of the artisans in the cities used slave labor in their shops, and grain farmers from Pennsylvania to southern New England were replacing indentured servants with slaves. The number of free men and women hiring out for wages steadily increased. This workforce included free immigrants, former indentured servants, Native Americans pushed off their lands, the lucky few who made it out of slavery and the descendants of these groups. Domestics and farmhands typically lived with their employers, working 16 hours a day and more in return for a tiny cash wage plus room and board. Slaves and indentured servants frequently challenged authority. Stubborn, refractory, discontented, in the words of one Connecticut official, they paced their work as they saw fit objected 
allow to insults and refused to march dutifully to whipping posts. For both slaves and indentured servants, the most common form of resistance was flight. The penalties for those apprehended included whipping, branding, and the amputation of an ear, but attempts to escape continued nonetheless. Inspired by the fact that some people managed to get away for good, in Spanish Florida, escaped slaves from the Carolinas founded a town of several hundred in 1739, located just north of St. Augustine, surrounded by stone walls and guarded by a town militia of about 100 strong. This settlement, known as Fort Mose, became a barrier against British invasion as well as a beacon for runaways. In 1740, when an army of South Carolinians marched into Florida, their defeat at Fort Mose persuaded to retreat. The town survived until Spain ceded Florida to Britain in 1763 and Fort Moses residents moved to Cuba. Resistance to servitude also took the form of armed rebellion. Colonial records describe the suppression of plot by would-be rebels including indentured servants in Maryland in the 1650s. An alliance of Indian and African slaves in Massachusetts in 1690, slaves in French New Orleans in 1730 and 1732, about 150 slaves and 25 white allies in New York City in 1741, and the Pablos in Spanish New Mexico in 1784, 1793, and 1810. If authorities exaggerated some plots and dreamed up some others, their suspicions are understandable. Experience proved time and again that bondage begat revolts. The largest occurred in New Mexico in August 1680 when 17,000 Pablos rose up against Spanish demands for tribute under the encomendo system and Indian conversions to Christianity. The revolt also seems to have won strong support from the tens of thousands of baptized Pablos laboring for Franciscan missions. By October, the rebels had driven every Spaniard out of New Mexico. Spain did not retake the colony until 1693 and never reestablished the encomienda system. Even free workers rebelled against the power of the rich in their own ways. Many working men and more than a few of the working women congregated in taverns in their spare time. Some showed up at entertainments intended for the gentry. The elite resented free workers' liberty to do as they willed in at least some corners of their lives, and that was the very thing that workers valued most. In 1763, Britain's empire in North America reached its height when wars with France and Spain end in a treaty that brought all lands east of the Mississippi under British control. The seeds of revolt had been planted for Britain's imperial wars bankrupted its treasury. To meet the costs of empire, the British Parliament sought to squeeze more revenues from the colonies, touching off protests that led inexorably to a revolution. The first round of protests took aim at the Stamp Act of 1765, which required that legal documents and other printed materials bury stamp purchased from British agents, 
and to add insult to injury, revenues from the Stamp Act financed Britain's colonial army and administrative apparatus, the very power structure that kept Americans under Parliament's thumb. Some members of the wealthy and middle classes joined the movement against the Stamp Act. In Boston, Newport, New York, and other cities, protest committees called the Sons of Liberty included merchants, lawyers, doctors, ministers, shopkeepers, and master craftsmen, along with large numbers of wage workers. These were fragile alliances, however, for a common people's anger at Britain's heavy hand routinely spilled over into anger at the rich. Assaults on the rich persisted even after Parliament caved into American protests and repealed the Stamp Act in March 1766. With the Stamp Act gone, Parliament soon returned to a new plan for taxing the colonies. The Revenue Act of 1767 imposed tariffs known as the Townsend duties on key goods Americans imported from abroad, paint, lead, glass, paper, and tea. Rebellious colonists responded with a non-importation movement, a boycott of all British imports. A wide network of boycott committees called Sons of Liberty, Regulators, Associators, or Liberty Boys extended from Massachusetts to South Carolina and from major cities to the backwoods. Merchants and shopkeepers who sold British goods were denounced as public enemies and often tarred and feathered too. Women played crucial roles in the boycott by producing alternatives to British imports. They brewed herbal drinks and rye coffee as substitutes for tea, replaced paint with homemade whitewash, virtually eliminated the colony's dependence on British textiles by spinning huge volumes of cloth from wool, flax, and hemp. Hundreds of local women's committees, often called the Daughters of Liberty, organized spinning bees and promoted slogans like, better to wear a homespun coat than to lose our liberty. But British soldiers liked to supplement their meager pay by moonlighting Local workers competed for the same jobs, ever harder to find once the boycott curtailed commercial shipping. Tensions mounted, punctuated by occasional fistfights, until pitched battles erupted in 1770. In January, workers and soldiers in New York City slugged it out in a two-day street fight known as the Battle of Golden Hill. Push came to shove in Boston that March when British troops brawled with rope makers who had insulted a soldier looking for work. Two days later, on the night of March 5th, a crowd of working men taunted soldiers from the same regiment, who suddenly opened fire. Five workers were killed and another six wounded in what colonists called the Boston Massacre. In November 1772, a Boston town meeting established a committee of correspondence to communicate with other cities and coordinate resistance. Other cities followed their example. Later, the Boston Correspondence Committee planned direct action protests, breaking British laws in orderly ways. A prime example was the famous Boston Tea Party of December 1773, in which squads of men boarded British ships dumping their cargo of tea into the harbor and left without claiming any booty. 
That winter, similar tea parties took place in other ports, and though jobs were scarce, working men in Boston and New York City conformed to strict boycotts on labor for the British Army. If organizations and discipline strengthened the resistance movement, so did British reaction to the Boston Tea Party. To punish Massachusetts, Parliament passed a series of laws known in America as the Intolerable Acts. They closed Boston Harbor to all trade, forbade communities throughout the colony to hold more than one town meeting a year, allowed British officials indicted of crimes in Massachusetts to stand trial elsewhere, and empowered the British Army to quarter troops in colonists' homes. Expressions of sympathy came from the other colonies, and committees of correspondence grew in size and number as they collected food, clothing, and money for the blockaded Bostonians. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.